I'm Beth Accomando, and welcome to the brand new Cinema Junkie podcast on KPBS. And what better way to kick off something new than with something old? Something old and cool, at least I think it is. With Mr. Holmes opening this week and Sir Ian McKellen taking on the role of Sherlock, I thought I'd go back into my archives for my 1996 interview with him about Richard III. I did this interview back at the old KPBS studios. This is when we were located back by the telecommunications department on the SDSU campus and had trailers for most of our staff. I had been told that Ian McKellen would be driven up in a limousine out behind the studios, and I was carefully instructed to make sure and call him Sir Ian and not just Ian McKellen. He arrived in his limo, which seemed a bit out of place on the San Diego State campus, and was exceedingly gracious. I led him back to the KPBS studios, which were far from glamorous at the time. We sat down to do the interview, and at one point during the discussion, he casually leaned back and put his elbow on part of the sound baffling that was at the back of the studio, and the whole thing fell down. He was very gracious about it, simply kept the conversation going, picked it up, pushed it back on the wall, and secured it. So that's my memory of interviewing Sir Ian McKellen. He was a great interview and so passionate about Shakespeare. And that's another reason why I thought this interview was a great one to pull out of the archives. This summer, the Old Globe Theater is doing a summer Shakespeare film festival. And listening to this interview, I realized how much information he had about adapting Shakespeare from the stage to the screen. So without further ado, here's my 1996 interview with Sir Ian McKellen. One thing I wanted to ask is I thought that it was interesting that Othello and Richard III have both made it to the screen at the same time because I find uh, a similarity between Iago and Richard. Do you think there's something about their villainy that makes them particularly interesting at this point in time? <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've just been setting this movie up for three years and I expect Oliver Parker's been doing the same thing with his movie. It's probably just coincidence, but the the last uh, Shakespeare part I played before doing Richard III on stage was Iago, <clears throat> and there is a, a similarity between the two of them, and, and they both do dreadful things, uh, of course, uh, and uh, they're both soldiers. Uh, they're, they're both, I think, taking revenge on the world for their own private reasons. Uh, Iago probably because his marriage has failed, and, and Richard because... Um, uh, he's been despised for the, his physical deformity since uh, the day he was born. W- w- witness um, Maggie Smith's character in the movie, his mother. Oh, let me speak. Be brief, dear mother, for I am in haste. A grievous burden was your birth to me. And came I not at last to comfort you? You came on earth to make the earth my hell. Touchy and wayward was your infancy. Your school days, frightful. Desperate, wild and furious, your prime of manhood, daring, bold and venturous, your age confirmed, proud, subtle, sly and bloody. What comfortable hour can you name that ever graced me with your company? If I be so disgracious in your Oh, hear me a little, for I shall never speak to you again. So? To war take with you my most grievous curse. My prayers shall on Richmond's party fight. Bloody you are. Bloody will be your end. Shame serves your life, and will your death attend? Iago doesn't quite have the, 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 those reasons for his uh, ill behaviour, but um, yes, they're both good actors too. They, they, they both fool people all the time. Richard fools everybody. He fools, uh, tricks a woman into marrying him against her better will. He, um, he kills his brother who trusts him right to the end, and so on and so on and so on. Uh, Shakespeare's very interested in villains. But I, I don't think just as embodiment of pure evil. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I don't like it when people say Iago and Richard III and Macbeth are just evil characters, full stop. They're not. I think Shakespeare's showing the humanity behind the evil deeds. 
Well, what interests me about those two in particular is they're kind of artists in evil, is how I've always seen them. They seem to enjoy the act of creation. Um, and in their case, they happen to be creating evil. I don't know if you see it that way. Well, certainly in Richard III, which is a, a play written when Shakespeare was quite young, in his mid-twenties or something, it's, f it's full of a youthful exuberance, and there's a lot of irony and wit uh, in, in the script, of course, uh, which comes across principally because uh, Shakespeare allows Richard III to talk directly to the audience. So even as he's tricking everybody else in the story and, and, and killing an awful lot of them or, 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 or giving the orders that they, they should be killed, uh, nevertheless, he just stops the action and turns to camera, in the case of this movie, and uh, says, well, I'm doing this for this reason, and I'm now going to do this, and uh, come along with me, I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, that uh, means we're rather on his side and find him rather beguiling, and hopefully halfway through the story, I think to ourselves, oh, crikey, what am I doing, uh, being on the side and wanting this man to succeed? Well, I think it is very interesting because he's by far, I think, the most interesting, intelligent, and witty character in the play, and you have to kind of somehow reconcile that with the fact that he's also the kind of the vilest character in the well, play. Well, that, that, I think, is the, is the point of Shakespeare's humanity, is that there are no simple solutions. You have to look at the evidence and make up your own mind. I mean, that seems to be his, his message. Don't put, just stamp labels on people because um, then you stop seeing them as human beings. I was interested in how you decided to do the first speech. This is the winter of our discontent. Mm. Um, normally, I believe it's a, sil a soliloquy done at the beginning of the play. Um, and you chose to do it kind of like as a public speech, and then at a certain point cut it to jump to like a, a, his own variation of it. Yes. The, 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 when you're turning a play into a movie, and that's what we've done with Richard III. The, the, the Richard III you see in, in the cinema on the big screen with the digital sound, this is no longer a play. It's been translated. It's, it's different. It's the same words. Uh, it's the same story. Uh, it's, it's the same Shakespeare's same intention, but hopefully translated utterly believably into a, a two-hour uh, popular movie that can be seen all over the world. Uh, now, cinema has certain advantages over the theatre. In the theatre, yes, the actor comes out at the, the outset of the play and it starts. Now is the winter of our discontent. What, what winter of discontent, the audience might say to themselves? Well, in the movie, they don't have to ask themselves because they've seen it. They've seen the war just coming to an end. They've, just, they've seen Richard behaving as the commander-in-chief. They've seen his brother now installed as king and they've seen uh, the royal family celebrating. It's at that point that he makes his public statement. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. <laughs> and all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreath. The son of York he refers to is not just the sun in the sky, but of course the son of the York family, King Edward, who's now king. And also it's, it's a triple pun, and the typical of Shakespeare. The son of York is also Richard, who is also another son of the York family. But it's rather rotund phrasing, it's rather pompous language, it's rather conscious, it draws attention to itself. Very public statement. And when I did it on stage, I used to think of myself making a public announcement. But halfway through, as, as you point out, halfway through the speech, it suddenly shifts in tone, uh, in mood. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fight the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber. 
to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I that am not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking glass, I that am rudely stamped, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up. And that's so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Ah, in this weak piping time of peace, I've no delight to pass away the time. Unless to spy my shadow and the sun and descant on my own deformity. Richard gets more intimate. He starts talking about himself. He starts talking about his sexual inadequacy, as he sees it. He talks about his appearance and what he thinks about it. This is not suddenly a speech for public consumption. It, it, it seems to be more private, more intimate, more a little bit neurotic. Uh, and that's why I put it in a place where a man might expect to be alone, which is in a, a bathroom. And uh, uh, he's washing his hands, having performed, and is looking at himself in the mirror. And it's just at that point he glances through the mirror and sees that there is an audience watching him and I turn to camera and uh, invite the audience to come along this roller coaster ride to destruction. Well, I can smile. And murder while I smile. And wet my cheeks with artificial tears and frame my face to all occasions. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover, I'm determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days. Plots have I laid to set my brothers, Clarence and King Edward, in deadly hate, the one against the other. So you can, by, by changing the, uh, the, the place where you actually shoot the film, underscore what I think is already in the text. And that's why, although this looks like no Shakespeare movie you've ever seen before, I, I'd put hand on heart and swear to you, it is absolutely Shakespeare, but translated into cinema. I just thought it was a, a very nice twist on it, because having heard the play many times before, you know, you get, uh, you have certain expectations set up, and mm. then when you do that, I thought it was very interesting because I heard the words in a different way. Well, I always like it when someone says, I'd never heard that line, even in a play that they know extremely well. But of course, as an actor on stage and screen, my principal responsibility is, is not to you who know the play somewhat, or not to those who know the play very well indeed, but to those who've never seen it before. And that's the motive, really, for, for setting Shakespeare's old story in a new setting of the 1930s, where, uh, because the clothes are recognizably modern, uh, and you can judge from them what somebody does for a living and uh, what social status they have and, and how much money they earn, this is all very useful information when you're telling a, a backstage story of power politics. Um, political thriller, really, and you need to know all the characters as well as possible. And, and modern costume uh, helps that uh, enormously. And why did you p decide to place it particularly in uh, kind of an imagined 30s with the kind of Nazi overtones? The 30s seemed to uh, us when we did the original stage production for the Royal National Theatre that the 1930s was the most recent period in history when it would have been credible that a senior member of the British royal family might 
at a time of social unrest, the depression and so on, unemployment, growing um, a tyranny in Europe from the right and left, Soviet Union as well as fascism, uh, that it would be credible that, that uh, uh, Britain might fall for a dictator or, or, or elect one and that they might be from the royal family. But, of course, Shakespeare isn't writing real history. He's not, he doesn't write a documentary. The Richard III that he writes is not the real mm. historical uh, Richard III. And, and we just borrow elements of the 1930s to make the story more convincing. Uh, but in, in point of fact, you're right, it isn't the real 30s at all. Nobody ever uses a telephone in this movie. Uh, <laughs> um, they ride around in, in, in Rolls Royces and, 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 and the battle scene is set in an urban landscape of, of, of tanks and, and, and some horses, of course, but... Uh, a horse, a horse, my king for a horse. Uh, but the tanks are often 1940s tanks. The army uniforms we wear are not strictly British army uniforms. So it's, it's a bit of history that never happened. I mean, Richard III is the most dreadful man who never lived, actually. Uh, and he becomes, therefore, um, uh, a type, uh, uh, an archetype, uh, uh, a myth. He's a mythical tyrant. Uh, he seems to be tyrant through and through and through, whichever way you cut him. Uh, and, and stands as a standard for, for real dictators, I, um, some of whom I think uh, have based their careers on the fictional rise of uh, Richard III. So what do you hope that contemporary audiences are going to take away from seeing your film? Well, I hope they'll be entertained, uh, and by entertained, uh, I hope they'll be uh, amused uh, and moved, uh, but given, uh, given something to think about. Uh, I hope they get from Shakespeare... Um, through the way we've done it, uh, a very, very clear story, rather melodramatic at times, but Shakespeare did call it the tragedy of Richard III. And I hope this film, unlike Laurence Olivier's movie uh, 50 years ago, will draw attention to the psychology of Richard, which is firmly there in the play, uh, so that we see some of the reasons why he turned out to be as he did, uh, never excusing him, of course, uh, but that's up to the... Uh, the audience to judge Richard, uh, and I don't think the playwright, Shakespeare, or, or the actors need to judge uh, him or his behaviour. Um, so I, I, I hope they'll have a rollicking good time, basically, and, uh, uh, and, and, and be excited and perhaps want to, to see more Shakespeare on screen and indeed on stage. But beware, always check first whether the Shakespeare production is any good, whether it's on screen or stage, <laughs> because there's nothing worse than bad Shakespeare. I know. When I was in, uh, what I always hated was in high school, <laughs> being introduced to Shakespeare and having some uh, teacher have maybe some kids read it or something. And it just, I remember I brought in the Zeffirelli film, uh, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, to listen yes. to because our teacher was had this very monotone delivery, and he would read pages mm. and pages of mm. Shakespeare. And well, Shakespeare is undoubtedly very difficult uh, to teach. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to act, and therefore for an audience or a reader to appreciate. And, and some of us have spent a lifetime puzzling how to do it. Uh, it's always finding a balance between being aware of, of um, the beauty and, and the subtlety and the, and the complications of Shakespeare's actual writing, the fact that he wrote in verse, uh, and at the same time holding true to his own instruction in, in Hamlet to speak the speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it to you, trippingly upon the tongue. He doesn't want the actors to mouth the lines like the town cry. He wants them to achieve a level of reality. And I, I think uh, 
uh, that is the trick of Shakespeare acting, to, to be aware of, of, of the technicalities of the verse, but not bother the audience with them and use those technicalities to make the words as clear and as uh, effective uh, as possible. And it was a big challenge to me to see whether I could uh, bring that off in the cinema, where, of course, the audience is closer than they ever are in a conventional theatre. You think the camera can be just six feet away from you, picking up a, a, every nuance. And uh, it's interesting that this old war horse of a, of a play, this old melodrama, does bear some examination. And, uh, uh, and, and taken seriously, there's a lot of subtle, subtlety in it. Now, when you went to cut the text, because it, it's been cut fairly severely. In fact, when I saw the film, what struck me is that it moved a lot more like Macbeth did, that very swift kind of mm. progression of taking him from, you know, where he was to yes. his rise to power. How difficult was it when you went to cut it? Did you have any guidelines that you were going by? Well, one thing didn't worry me what was the sense of time passing, because you're right, the movement of the play should be very swift, and, and on stage directors are always whipping actors. Come on, get a move on, get a move on, get a move on. Well, they would never say that if they saw this movie, because, my God, it moves fast, and, and, and he's no sooner started on the journey than he seems to have achieved his end. Um, with the fatal decline, uh, satisfyingly, at the end. Uh, but I never really thought, what am I going to cut? I, th I was always thinking, rather, what am I going to keep in? <laughs> I was excited by that. And having played the play 300 times across the world, it was while I was in the States each night after the performance, I'd go to my hotel room and start the screenplay. And I knew what the audience most enjoyed. I knew what they laughed at. I knew what they found uh, thrilling or intriguing. I also knew where they were confused uh, and puzzled and sometimes bored. I knew where they turned off in the theater. Mm -hmm. I knew the things you didn't actually need. And I knew the things that you desperately did need to keep the core of the story. So it was a very simple thing for me to do, to, to cut the text. And I was cutting it for to make a two-hour movie. That's what I, that was the translation I was doing. Not a three-hour movie. There would have been more dialogue in that. Not a four-hour movie, uh, because I know nobody would come and see it. Nor was I turning it into a ballet or an opera or any of the other translations that have gone on with Shakespeare. No, this was for a two-hour movie, and uh, the, we kept as much dialogue as a two-hour movie we felt could take. Though, of course, this is a talkie. Uh, as well as a movie. I mean, there are words, and if they weren't there, uh, there would be no point in doing it because uh, that's what uh, Shakespeare hangs his storytelling on, obviously. At the end, I was wondering, uh, it seems like it's a bit of a homage to uh, Jimmy Cagney and White Heat. Was that something that was on your mind? or? Uh, you mean with the song at the, the end? The song and the, the falling, the kind of the, the gleeful look on your face as you... <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the the end of Richard III is perhaps not not as not as clear cut as it sometimes seems on stage. It's more ambiguous. I think often at the end of these tragedies, Shakespeare doesn't want the audience to feel ah, Fortinbras is going to be the perfect man to take over uh, everything that's rotten in the state of Denmark at the end of Hamlet. Ah, young Malcolm is really going to solve all the problems of Scotland that Macbeth has left behind. And I don't think young Richmond. Uh, who, who uh, vanquishes Richard III is necessarily going to be turned into um, a, 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 gr a great um, head of state. And um, that's why, as Richard commits suicide and falls backwards off the top of the, uh, the girder um, to a certain death, it's quite unnecessary for Richmond to, to fire into the falling body 
but as he turns to the camera and grins, uh, you know that when he gets down below and meets his supporters, he's going to claim that he did the deed. And then you think, well, we've got a liar as King of England, another liar. And it's at that point that Al Jolson starts singing, I'm sitting on top of the world, because that's how Richmond feels. And as we cut to Richard falling down to hell, and the song continues. I'm sitting on top of the world, just rolling along, just rolling along. Then it becomes an ironic comment on Richard. But some people have said to me, I loved the Jolson because it just reminded us of, of how people did think in the 30s that mm -hmm. they were sitting on top of the world and we know how long that lasted. And uh, so the, an authentic voice from the period I thought, I thought was nice. And as Warren Beatty said to me when we were talking about should we have that particular song or not, he said, well, uh, don't you want to have the greatest American performer of the 20th century in your movie? And don't you, in a movie which is excitingly uh, created around Shakespeare's words, want to have the first voice that was ever heard in a movie, in your movie? And that clinched it for me, and uh, I'm very happy with that ending. Yeah, I thought it was great, but it, it, it when you played the song, at first, you know, it is over Richmond, so you can think of him, but... When I saw him falling into the flames, Richard falling, it was just that image of Cagney from White Heat, who he knew he was going to die, but somehow it was just still, you know, top of the world, ma, and, you know, I'm going to die, but I still had a good time. Well, of course, Richard III is a bit of a gangster, isn't he, as, mm -hmm. as well as a, a politician, and as well as a, a, a son, as well as a dreadful husband, as well as a dreadful uncle, as well as, well as a dreadful brother. Uh, there are many aspects to him. Um, did you have any doubts, or, or the director have any doubts about casting Americans in with the British actors? Um, did you ever hesitate about that? No. When we'd uh, originally rehearsed the play, just for the London stage and a tour of the world, um, having put it in the 1930s, we thought, what would be a good 30s equivalent for uh, this Queen Elizabeth character and, and her brother, Rivers, who are social outsiders in mm -hmm. Shakespeare's play? They're not of the same aristocratic class as everybody else. A good theatre's equivalent to that is to make them non-British. Yeah. Uh, no disrespect in <laughs> terms of social class to Americans in general. Uh, and so when we didn't follow that through when we did it on stage, but, but I picked up the idea when I did the screenplay and thought, yes, great, let's have two American actors speaking with American accents, showing the world that you don't have to be English to play Shakespeare, and that's so ridiculous. What I'd unwittingly done in my innocence, because I'd never written a screenplay before, was I'd written in two fabulous parts, courtesy of Shakespeare, for two Hollywood uh, movie stars. And as we got Annette Benning and Robert Downey Jr., that meant that their presence in the movie uh, greatly enhanced um, uh, the attraction of the movie for investment. And uh, so th th their part, from that point of view, was absolutely crucial. But. It wasn't the reason we made them American. It was just a happy chance. Yeah, because it did seem to make them... Well, for one thing, it made it easier, I think, for people unfamiliar with the play to, you know, relate the two of them together. That's right. And also, I think it did make it seem, especially once the king died, I think you felt that their situation was much more precarious. Well, that's... Thank that you. Good. I'm, I'm glad that's what it's felt, because increasingly, Annette Benning's character is isolated. Initially, her husband is just been made king and she's on top of the world uh, but she knows her husband isn't well and she's worried about that she brings her brother over from the uh, 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 from America to um, be a support to her and uh, no sooner has her husband died than uh, Richard bumps off her brother and she's very much isolated and then 
Her two little sons are put in prison, and then they're killed in prison, and all she's got left is her daughter. And then Richard comes in and says that he wants to marry her 15-year-old daughter in a wonderful, appalling, the great scene, I think, of, of the script when um, Richard makes that bid. Know then that with my soul I love your daughter and do intend to make her Queen of England. <laughs> what? You. What think you of it? How can you woo her? Well, that would I learn of you. And will you learn of me? Madam, with all my heart. Send to her by the man who slew her brothers a pair of bleeding hearts, then will she weep. If this inducement move her not, send her a letter of your noble deeds. Tell her you made way her uncle Clarence, her uncle Rivers, yes, and for her sake made quick conveyance with her good Aunt Anne. You mock me, madam, this is not the way to win your daughter. There is no other way unless you could put on some other shape and not be Richard who's done all this. And perhaps we shouldn't tell the audience the outcome because Queen Elizabeth seems to be ambiguous at the end of the scene. Will she, won't she give her young daughter to save her own skin? Well, I think two of the best scenes are actually with the women, Richard wooing Anne yes. after he's just killed her husband, yes. and then the one with Elizabeth <clears throat> also. It's good, isn't it, that it's a, it's a screenplay with so many wonderful parts for women. I find that touching that the, the young Shakespeare, uh, li living in an age when men on the whole rule the world, although there was a Queen of England, of course, uh, was as interested in women as, as, as in men. And, um, and and there are these great parts, and uh, my God, the actresses have run with them. Yes, Kristen Scott Thomas is, uh, solves all the emotional problems of that scene uh, brilliantly. Um, can you remember what the first Shakespeare play you ever saw was before you began performing? I, th I think it was Twelfth Night, or, or might have been Macbeth. They were very close together, done by an amateur group of amateur actors in the north of England where, where I lived, and I suppose I was about seven or eight, and uh, my sister told me the plot, or the beginning of the plot, and uh, I don't know, I was riveted, absolutely riveted, and have been ever since by the idea of people standing up on a platform, uh, speaking other people's words, and uh, weaving some sort of magic out of it all. And what was the first Shakespeare you ever performed? Uh, it was a little excerpt from Twelfth Night. I played Malvolio, and uh, then I did full-length Shakespeare at, at uh, school, um, Henry V and so on, until I went to university. And at Cambridge, I, I fell in with a crowd of people that included David Frost and uh, Trevor Nunn, who uh, um, directed Cats and Les Miserables, and my own Macbeth and Othello and, and so on. But uh, they were all going to become professionals, and so I decided to give it a try, and here I am still trying. Hmm. I'm doing quite a good job. Thank you. <laughs> um, what do you think of um, Olivier's Richard III? I know it's probably sacrilegious to say, but I never have liked that version. It just seemed like he kind of drained Richard of some of the energy to me. I mean, what did you think of that? Anything I say about uh, <laughs> that particular work and, and that particular man m must be set into the context of... of um, my idolizing him and his career mm. and, and uh, having known him and indeed worked for him. Uh, uh, he, he's a great standard and, and model for people of my generation. I think Rich, his Richard III is very much of its time. Mm -hmm. uh, he, it's perhaps the last great performance in that line of Richard III through the ages which have treated him as a comic uh, jolly villain. Mm -hmm. 
sort of Captain Hook in Peter Pan, uh, you, you rather feel Barry based that character on, on, on the traditional Richard III, you know, uh, more melodrama than tragedy. Uh, now, of course, Olivier does it with, with immense uh, subtlety and, and wit, and he's extremely funny and engaging and charismatic, and unlike any man you've ever met. Uh, and, and, and lifts the play, I think, out of a reality uh, so that Richard becomes a, a, a fascinating, glittering monster, mm -hmm. surrounded by scenery in the movie, which is clearly stage scenery. It's, it's, it's not a real setting. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think he was thinking back uh, and trying to record his own performance in a stage production. And set in medieval costume, floppy hats and wrinkled mm -hmm. tights and hands-on hips, you can't really work out who everybody is in the way that you can in our movie, I think. Uh, so consequently, the Olivia performance gets even more separated from, from mm -hmm. the rest of the play, and, and the rest of the characters and the, the lines seem to be there just to bolster his performance. Now, that's 50 years ago, uh, another time, another place, another actor, and, and since then in the theatre, um, Richard III has drawn attention as a, as a political story, as, as a not too deep analysis of a political system and, and, and realising that Richard could not have made it to the top unless he'd been surrounded by a lot of other greedy people who were also trying to scrabble to the top but just didn't have his mm. resources of willpower and energy and so on. And again, in the Olivia movie, he wasn't concerned with, with the, his, his relationship with his mother. That, that part really wasn't in the movie, mm -hmm. nor did he have the, that... Uh, wonderful scene we were just talking about with Queen Elizabeth. Uh, Queen Elizabeth is, is a part that's run down in his movie as well. Mm -hmm. So although his lasts half an hour longer than our version, <laughs> it's full of uh, stuff that um, I don't think is as good as the stuff I've kept in. But there we are. It's not to, it's not to condemn mm -hmm. that movie or to tell people they shouldn't go and see it. I, I, I would love people, having seen ours, to, to go back and look at uh, the video of uh, Olivier and, and see as I know only too well, there are many, many, many ways of doing these mm -hmm. great parts. Uh, and even if you just did them on the stage in exactly the same set and had the same cast, two actors playing Richard III would do it quite mm -hmm. differently. Uh, and that's the glory of the, of the classics, is that they constantly can be renewed. And, and those of us who uh, dare to take Shakespeare and <laughs> turn him into a, a popular movie know that the script still exists for the next fool to come along with and uh, do whatever he or she wants to do. Well, I remember one of the favorite, it, it wasn't actually a production, it was a recording, was Richard, uh, Robert Steffens doing um, Richard III. Oh, yes. Which was wonderful. I yes. mean, he just took such delight in everything yes. he did. Yes, yes, he had a voice that really relished uh, that language. Um, how difficult was it to uh, get financing for a film like this? Did you meet with a lot of um, opposition to bringing Shakespeare to the screen? Well, um, my financiers were aware that of late there have been uh, a few... Shakespeare on the screen that have covered their costs, perhaps not made a spectacular amount of money, but that's not always necessary. Um, but um, I, uh, I'm not uh, a bankable name in international uh, movie circles, and um, uh, it was constantly persuading people that uh, the movie, uh, whoever was in it, uh, based on the script that I'd done, uh, based on my knowledge of, 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 of the play, uh, was going to be something that would entertain not just an art uh, house uh, movie-going audience, but a wider audience than that. Uh, young people would in, would enjoy it and understand it immediately, whether they'd come across Shakespeare or not before. 
there would always be that constituency of people who are interested in Shakespeare. I don't have to tell anyone listening in San Diego that Shakespeare is a popular form of entertainment, and as it is throughout the world, as he is throughout the world. So there would always be those people who would be intrigued, but I wanted to get beyond them. And I gradually I did convince people, and the people it was easiest to convince first were people who were going to be involved, other actors and uh, the director, Richard Longcrane, they could see it. Financiers uh, were a little bit more uh, reluctant to, to come along and um, now cannot believe their luck that so cheaply they've got this uh, wonderful movie that the critics are going bananas about. So it's all worked out very well. But it took about three years from the point at which I finished the screenplay to the mm -hmm. point at which the film was actually completed. Do you have a, a particular scene uh, that you enjoyed most as an actor performing in, 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 the in film? Richard III? Yeah. Well, I enjoyed, I enjoyed all. Uh, I suppose the bits, and it's not the bits because it's most of the part that I enjoyed most, most is when Richard is lying, because actually that's very easy to do. Um, because as you set up with the audience that you're going to lie to the next person you meet when you go back into the story of, of the film, uh, once, you, once you're with your brother Clarence and, and he's going off to the Tower of London at your request, although he doesn't know it, uh, to lie and just be charming and loving, all I have to do is look at Nigel Hawthorne, you know, star of Madness of uh, King George, uh, and, and, and love him as a brother, and the scene works. I don't have to keep talk, turning to the camera and winking and saying, you know, I'm being a bad guy here, because the audience do that work for you. So the audience participation in the film, and knowing as I'm being um, so duplicitous with my nearest and dearest within the story, always knowing that the, the camera and, and, and the cinema audience uh, want me to succeed because they know what I'm doing, uh, it's... It made acting for the camera seem a less lonely business than it sometimes feels when uh, you're just stuck within your character and uh, that's all you have to do. I, I was always aware there was an audience, of course, it's the tr my theatre training, I suppose. Now, how difficult is it as an actor to do those asides to the camera where you're, you know, playing in the scene and you suddenly do the little turn to the camera? Well, it's quite easy technically to do. You just turn to the camera and think of it as a person. Um, just one person. You don't think of millions out there. Oh dear. Uh, of course, direct address, we call it in the theatre, is very simple. Uh, to walk out onto a stage and, and say, now is the winter of our discontent. Uh, there are so many conventions that can be used in the theatre that that odd one of someone who's clearly a character talking to the audience as if he's just walked off the street, the audiences accept and enjoy indeed. And Shakespeare depends on it very heavily in, in many of his plays. Uh, when you come to translate um, Shakespeare to the television screen, uh, well, that's easy too. Um, we all understand talking heads. We're, we're always being talked to through the camera in, in, into the screen and in, into our living room. But on the big screen, with the digital sound, the music going and, and all the sound effects, when a character turns on the big screen, and looks at us, I wonder whether we actually believe it. I mean, we, isn't the problem with it that we're reminded that actually this is a film that was made some months ago and that the actor who's trying to be intimate with us, talking directly to us, is tucked up in bed across the world somewhere. Um, uh, but I couldn't see an alternative. And, and having looked at other Shakespeare films that hadn't used, taken advantage mm -hmm. of the device, 
Uh, Olivier doesn't talk to the camera in his Hamlet. Branagh didn't talk to the uh, camera in Much Ado About Nothing. And I, both, mm -hmm. I thought both performances lost because of it. I thought it was worth risking and, and going out. And it's very satisfying when I see the film with an audience now to, to, to um, hear the relish with which they're, they're, they're picking up those little moments of intimacy. That oh, the audience in. loves it. Every time yeah. you turn to the camera, there's a huge <laughs> response. <laughs> What do you see uh, are the differences between doing Shakespeare on stage and in film, and what, what do you appreciate about the differences in those mediums? Shakespeare wrote the plays for the stage, that's no doubt, and, and, but not our modern sort of stage. Uh, there's no such thing as an authentic Shakespeare production. Well, an authentic Shakespeare production wouldn't have any actresses in it because he didn't use them. It would be in the open air. There would be no scenery. It wouldn't be a sort of theatre that we would necessarily enjoy too much. Um, so every time you do a Shakespeare play, you are doing it for the particular situation that you're in. Is it a small theatre? Is it a large theatre? Is it a small cast? Are we going to be playing a lot of part? Uh, are we going to make our entrances through the audience? Are we going to have scenery? Um, is it going to be a touring production? All these things affect the way you present the story. So it's no different to that discipline that I'm used to to say, right, we're now going to do this, uh, uh, these words uh, for the camera uh, and we'll do it in the studio and we'll do it on location in London and uh, we'll visit all these places and, and take the cinema audience with us. Uh, as long as you understand the medium mm -hmm. uh, of film, like Richard Longcrane does, we just say to ourselves, we're making a two-hour movie, just as we might say, we are doing Richard III in uh, this small underground cellar. Mm -hmm. Do you see what I mean? So it's just a matter of translation. and um... But in film, you do have opportunities to, uh, you know, if you do want to do a scene change, you don't have to physically, you know, move the scenery off the stage. That's, or, that's right. Or, but... you know, if you want to do a very small <coughs> gesture or steer your attention to a different part. Absolutely. The, those are things you, you can do. But also, it's, it's, it is amazing, even on the very big widescreen that we have for Richard III, how there is so much to see and that the audience still has to work. You know, it isn't all presented. <clears throat> Not everything is in, is, is, the camera doesn't zoom in and say, mm -hmm. look at this. It does invite you to, to, to use your imagination and uh, keep your wits about you. And if you do, of course, you, you, miss, you, you see all sorts of little uh, beauties that, uh, that just on one viewing you, you might miss. You know, that little scowl on Maggie Smith's face just in the corner of the screen as... Uh, as Robert Downey Jr. dumps some uh, presents. Oh, the packages on <laughs> Yeah, you, you pick that up. Yeah. You? There are all sorts of little things like that uh, which are nice. And uh, uh, and it is very intriguing for an actor who, who spent a lot of his time uh, shouting Shakespeare because I've worked in very big theatres mm -hmm. where you have to do that and wave your arms around to get the message over to the people sitting in the back of the gallery. And I think everyone who's paid their money deserves a <laughs> performance. Well, now in the cinema, that really isn't the case. It's quite different. The, everything is picked up. It's very close. And, and your main responsibility is to just exist and be the character and not, not start projecting it. And that's a very interesting discipline for me, and I'd like to do more of it. Do you have a preference for doing it on stage or on film, or would you like to continue to do it in both? No, I think in, in, the, in the end, when it comes to Shakespeare, uh, I don't think all of his plays are necessarily suitable for, for um, filming. Uh, and, and the later we get in his career, when you get to the great poetic plays like Macbeth, for instance, and King Lear and 
Coriolanus and uh, Antony Cleopatra and Othello. The, these are complicated structures. And if you start removing a little speech here or the odd line there, the whole fabric uh, can begin mm -hmm. to uh, implode. And, and, and you think, well, why are we bothering doing it? Richard III is different. It's a young man's play. It's exuberant. It's, it's uh, dare I say it, overwritten at times. There's a lot of repetition in it. Mm -hmm. uh, you can really take a lot of it out and, and still leave not just the skeleton of the structure, but, but quite a lot of meat on it. And uh, uh, it's a relatively easy job. But if I'm going to do, let's say, Macbeth once more, um, I think it would be the theatre I'd like to do it in and delve into the... Um, into the problems of um, making that text theatrically exciting. That's always I have done it favorite. on screen, on, actually, on video screen. And, Macbeth? Uh, and Trevor Nunn's production, if anyone's interested, they should root it out because it, it, it is uh, terrifying, as long as you don't uh, play it on your own with the drapes closed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's always been one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. Yes, I love it too. I was also interested in um, I don't know if you had anything to do with it, but the uh, it seemed like the use of sound was very good in the film. And sometimes little things, I think there was the scene at the train station when just as you're puffing on the cigarette, it's mm. like the, the steam from the, the train also lets out at the same time. Which, uh, how much of a role did you play in some of the those kind of decisions? Well, it, it's, it's been one crash course in how to make movies for me. And... and uh, Richard Longcrane, the director, who is extremely suspicious of Shakespeare, <clears throat> as many people quite rightly are, because they've they've seen too much bad Shakespeare in the theatre and on screen and been taught it badly, um, was always pulling as we were preparing the production to saying, we're making a movie, Ian, we're making a movie. And I was always saying to him, yes, please make a movie, please make a movie. But wait, wait a minute here, I think Shakespeare, Shakespeare can help you here. <laughs> Uh, everything there springs out of Shakespeare. So I was allowed uh, uh, to be in on the, the whole planning of the way the movie would look. I, I was involved with the casting of it I, and, and the actual filming of it. I was able to make suggestions when it was being cut together. And yes, the sound was of great interest to me because um, uh, it is a talkie and, and, and it, uh, I do want the audience to listen. And the opening 10 minutes gradually leads them into the idea that they're going to be invited to listen eventually uh, as we um, give the exposition of, of the events which lead up to the beginning of our story. We see the end of the Civil War. Uh, it begins very quietly. No words are spoken. Tap of a Morse code, it's the whine of a dog. It's uh, the scrape of a, a knife and fork on a plate as, as um, the f Richard's first victim has his last supper. And then a dog starts barking uh, and in comes Richard III riding on a tank. Well, dogs bark at me as I pass by them. I mean, that was the reason, you know, directly from the text. That that's, that's why that happened. Uh, and then the sound continues and we hear Richard's heavy breathing through the gas mask he's wearing. And I'm breathing in the rhythm of blank verse, uh, whether you know it or not. Dum de dum de dum de dum de dum. And then I shoot my second victim, and the movie starts. And then you see Richard go across the screen. R I C H A R D one one one, and that's the first word that has an impact, and it's the word that Shakespeare gave as the title. Then we hear some music, and then there's a song. Oh, so those are the first words. Are they? Yes, the song, and the song is written 
unfortunately not by Shakespeare. I went, <laughs> I went right through the canon. I couldn't find anything that I really approved of. So it's uh, Come Live With Me and Be My Love, words by Christopher Marlowe, but when they were first published, actually were published under Shakespeare's name. And did you notice that the, the big band uh, playing uh, behind was William Shakespeare's band? He had his initials on the oh, no. each of the bandstands, WS band. And then you see the dance, you see the crowd celebrating, and then Richard, as the command, successful commander-in-chief, steps up onto the platform and uh, the singer goes. And through a microphone, we, we hear the first public words, now is the winter of our discontent. And... Uh, I hope the audience by that time wants somebody to be speaking, uh, is pleased if they know the play to realize, ah, it is the first words of the play. And for those who don't know the play, uh, because of the prologue uh, and the lead up to it, uh, they can actually understand what Richard is talking about and what events he's referring to. And, and that really kicks, uh, starts the play, and, um, or rather kicks, starts the film in a way that the play often doesn't do. It, I think it takes a long time for people to get into Richard III on stage, but mm -hmm. in this movie, we're there, there right from the word go, hopefully. Uh, do you have any plans to do any other Shakespeare on film? Uh, I don't have plans, and uh, I have thoughts, and I've looked at a couple of texts, but as I was saying to you earlier, it's, it isn't as easy with other plays as it was with mm -hmm. Richard III. I don't think they all lend themselves to what we did in this particular case, but uh, who knows? Um, I, I think actually having spent three years setting this up and, and doing it, I, I'd like to do more films simply as an actor. And I ought probably to be getting back to the theatre because I've not been on a stage or not been in a play now uh, since Richard Third stage production closed at UCLA three years ago. Do you feel the need to go back to the theatre then on a regular basis? Well, it's what I do best, I suppose, or, or where I feel most at home. But it has been exciting uh, doing a bit of adventuring, you know, and, and going, getting into movies. No, I, I, I hope one of my motives for, for doing this film and, and, and providing myself with the best, uh, one of the best parts ever written uh, was the hope that uh, I would then go on to do more movies. I mean, I... It, it's with some slight envy I look at uh, Tony Hopkins' career, let's say, when you know Tony can do theatre and, and film if he wants. And I would like to be in a, in a similar position. But uh, so what it'll be next, uh, uh, I don't know. But it, it certainly won't be producing a movie. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Well, Hollywood will probably offer you some more villains to play. <laughs> That's the most likely thing, isn't it? Yes, third lead in Die Hard 146. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it's it's a bit annoying that the English accent, accent these days is always thought to be a, a sign of uh, villainy, and I've not helped myself, have I, by playing <laughs> Richard III. <laughs> but perhaps for people who have seen it, they realise that I, I, I do quite uh, like doing comedy, and uh, I don't always have to look like myself. I can go into some sort of disguise, so there are parts I could play. <laughs> um, one last question, and one of my favourite scenes, I think, was also... Um, when you're uh, just before they ask you to become king, and you're in front of the mirror, and they give you the the you know quote unquote prayer book. Yeah. Um, to me, that seemed very much Richard the actor. You know, they're yes. preparing for the scene. That's um, right. Did you play him? At, I mean, did you really consciously go into it thinking I'm going to you know play up the, uh, his enjoyment of acting and and. Uh, 
creating these different faces. Well, it's uh, it's certainly an obsession of Shakespeare that all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. And as so often, uh, his villains are wonderful actors. Um, you know, how, how often is it that, that, that uh, <coughs> someone in public life has died and only later do we realize um, that their public image was absolutely nothing like the real person uh, or had elements in it that, that were contrary to public perception. And, of course, that's certainly true in Richard's case. And, yes, the, the, the scene where, where he uh, uh, accepts the invitation to become king, just as uh, Adolf Hitler made sure that he was voted into power as Chancellor of Germany. I think Hitler based his career a little bit on Richard III. Uh, it was it was an opportunity to see Richard backstage, and 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 uh, in we've, we've changed the location from from the one that uh, Shakespeare probably would have expected uh, for a stage production. Uh, and Richard is waiting to appear at a great political rally, uh, and so it's appropriate that there might be a makeup artist on hand to just check that dreadful appearance and try and push it back into shape and make him look presentable at least from a distance. Put a bit of powder on his nose. And yes, he is getting ready to give a performance. So these are just little uh, little references to the idea of his, his being an actor, which are truly Shakespearean, although presented in a, in a quite modern way. Okay, well, I think they're going to need you to move on to your Are next. Okay. Yeah, I think she said 1040, I mean 945, so I'll let you go. And thank you very much. You've gone through all your bullets. Oh, I don't know. I think so. <laughs> well, thank Pretty you. Pretty much. Thanks for doing your homework. Don't want any million. I'm getting my share. I've only got one suit, just one. That's all I can wear. Thanks for listening to the Cinema Junkie Podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. I have more than 20 years of interview archives with the likes of Clive Barker, David Cronenberg, Guillermo del Toro, John Woo, Jackie Chan, and more. And I'll be pulling more of these out of the archives for future Cinema Junkie Podcasts. So if you enjoyed my interview with Sir Ian McAllen, please subscribe to the Cinema Junkie Podcast on iTunes and make sure you give us a rating. And I'm quitting the blue of the world I'm singing a song, just singing a song. Glory, hallelujah, I just phoned a parson. Hey, Pa, get ready to call. Just like Humpty Dumpty, I'm going up all. I'm sitting on top of the world, just rolling along.